Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Well, good morning again. It's good to see you. I'm Father Morgan Reed, the vicar here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. Uh, Let me pray for us as we begin this morning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, today... um, I want to think about mirrors a little bit. When you think of a mirror, we have one back there in that room. You all have one in your house, probably multiple in your house. When we think of mirrors, we think often of these things now that are are a glass pane that's coated with some sort of shiny metal, whether that's aluminum or silver or something else. And, you know, for better or for worse, when you look at a modern mirror, it shows you everything that you're looking at. Whether you want to see it or not, uh, they're really, really effective. And um, when we think about the history of mirror making, that wasn't always the case. They didn't make mirrors out of shiny panes of glass with foil covered behind them or before them. When you think back to Jesus's day, the way that they made mirrors was using like tin or silver or bronze they would hammer it out completely flat and then they would highly polish it Um, and I've been polishing when we get into the new space uh, I've got some new candlesticks and a new uh, missile stand and I've been polishing those things to get them all shiny and I can attest when you shine them up enough you can actually see your reflection in them before I started shining them I couldn't I had wondered if they were just damaged beyond belief, but no, you can polish them pretty well. Um, but even so, the reflection's a little murky in them, so the best you can do with those mirrors is not anything close to what we can do today when we think of modern mirrors. Uh, but if you think about those ancient mirrors, when you hammer them out and polish them, if there's any kind of imperfection in the metal or a scratch in the metal, then the image is going to get really distorted. Uh, and it gets less and less clear. And so you have to go through the process again of heating it up, hammering it out, repolishing the thing uh, until you can actually see a clear image in it. And ancient mirrors were often an example of the spiritual life of the Christian when you read a lot of the ancient writers. So one of which, uh, who I've mentioned before, St. Ephraim, the Syrian, he wrote in the 4th century. He says this, he says, The church is like a mirror in which, as someone's face looks at it, so it takes on the image thereof. For as also a king, so his armies. As also a priest, so his flock. According to each is the imprinted image impressed upon them. So the idea is that somebody important is impressing their image upon their subjects or priest to the church. Uh, You can think of Jesus and the flock. So then he says, blessed is the one who has impressed her with his likeness. In other words, blessed is Jesus who has impressed the church with his image like a mirror. And I love that idea that the church... 
corporately is a mirror for Jesus' image. It's, it's an image, uh, it bears the image of God. So the body of Christ, the thing that you and I are all of a part of by our baptism is this newly created people that is made to display the image and the likeness of God. And in our passage today and for the next several weeks, I'm going to be focusing a lot on the communion of saints. Even next week, we're going to be celebrating All Saints Sunday. All Saints Day is on November 1st, and we'll move the feast and celebrate it on on the 6th of November next Sunday together. So we'll have white rather than green, and that's what's going on with that next week. And then uh, this morning, we're looking at 2 Thessalonians 1, which we read this morning. And, And we're looking at how God depicts his glory in the communion of saints through lives of faith. How God depicts his glory in the communion of saints through lives of faith. St. Paul had preached to this area before. Uh, He established the church in Thessaloniki back in the book of Acts when you read chapter 17. This is a major city. It's the capital of the region. And as he preaches about Jesus in the synagogues, it says that those who came to faith were a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women in the city. That um, Again, this was a, a major city. It was a capital of trade and flourishing and education. Some of those who were a part of that city, a lot of the educated grew dissatisfied with the immorality and with the inconsistency of Roman paganism. And so they had attached themselves to the synagogue. But of course, uh, even there in attaching themselves to the synagogue to discover the true God, there was still a barrier for them to worship because they were Gentiles. So you can see here why this preaching would, you know, prick the hearts of those who were attaching themselves to the life of Jewish worship. So the church in Thessaloniki starts out as this really predominantly Gentile body of believers. And as these people of various classes, they were, you know, upper class, uh, and middle class, all sorts of people were coming to believe in Jesus, they could no longer worship the gods of the empire. So they weren't considered very patriotic. They had to have been considered unpatriotic by those who were looking around at them and and self-righteous even. You know, how can these people think they're better than us? Possibly even traitors, right? If something's going wrong in the culture, it's easy to see why these people are to blame. Um, When things didn't go well in society, then you can picture why these Christians are going to become a a persecuted minority in the capital city uh, as they followed the narrow way of Jesus. So it's to this group of converts, these Gentiles who are following Jesus, that, and some Jews as well that are brought in together in one body in Christ, that St. Paul writes this letter. He, this is the second letter he's written to them. And in this letter, there's this encouragement uh, that the trials they face are not going to last forever. And he feels compelled then to begin with a note to them. And the note says, you know what? You guys are doing things right. I have to tell you that. Let me start out with the fact that you guys are doing a great job. They have a faith that is growing in abundance. They have a love for one another that's continually increasing. So this church is doing what it's supposed to do. Faith and love. Faith and love are the two virtues that are necessary for allowing God's image 
to uh, be imprinted on us. Faith and love are those two virtues. Faith is that, that deep growth in reliance and dependence on our creator. It's also the idea that we are uh, carrying on the apostles' teaching. Love is this growing care and communion with the saints. A growing care and communion with the saints. These are what we need to grow into uh, putting on Christ's love uh, and displaying it for other people. How do people know the love of Christ? It's when we are growing in faith and love. And so sometime back, I was thinking back to when I had been trained in the Alpha course, which we ran as a church a couple of years ago. And uh, it's a great course for helping people find answers to the big questions they're asking about faith and, and the purpose of life. And one of the leaders, when I was being trained how to do it, they had asked the They'd, well, they stated that there's really nothing out of bounds that you can talk about in your small group. It's really great that way. Uh, and the kinds of questions that people have, you know, let those guide the conversation. But you know what? One thing is going to be a really um, unhelpful discussion point that's really going to turn people off to faith. Uh, I don't know. I'll let you guys guess. Do you guys have any idea what could be a discussion point that would turn people off to the faith? Hell? What else? Sin? Politics? What else? Jesus? Actually, interestingly, the answer was none of those. He said, you should talk about all those things. He said that the one thing that really turns people off uh, to the faith is internal disagreements among Christians. And so, you know, why are Methodists doing this? Why are Baptists doing that? Why are Catholics doing this? Uh, those are really unhelpful to the, the person who's exploring the faith. And, and those disagreements are real and they are substantial, but often those conversations happen without love, right? And so to disagree with love happens at a more mature level of discussion than, you know, Twitter, you know, like tweets or sound bites. And um, those things are had over time in the context of relationship with somebody in that denomination. And now here's the thing. I am grateful for you guys. You guys are very emotionally mature as a church. Uh, it is a blessing to have uh, such an average age being so young and to have such emotional maturity here. That is not true everywhere. <clears throat> and, um, and last year we actually, because of that, we invited somebody to come and they gave a great seminar on how to have conflict well because... Uh, you guys can steward that well. You guys are good at having productive, mature conflict. Um, she was really good for us as a young church plant uh, because I want us to know that relationships really involve uh, conflict when they're going to grow. Good, productive, healthy conflict. And we can, when we can press into that awkwardness together, uh, the awkwardness of disagreeing about things that we're really passionate about, believing that God actually wants the best for that other person, that God made them and cares for them as much as he made me and cares for me, that's when we start to grow together in his image and we reflect his likeness like a mirror. Often, conflict becomes that place where God is hammering out the mirror and polishing it up so that his face is reflected in his church. 
verses 5 through 12 kind of go into a little shift here in 2 Thessalonians 1. And it's, it's a major theme of this book, the apocalypse. And I swear I didn't heat up the church this morning so that you could experience a taste of the apocalypse. Um, but this, this, the apocalypse is the, the revealing, that's what the word means, revealing, the revealing of Jesus and his second coming. And, and in this passage, it mentions a day in which those who don't know God and those who don't obey his gospel are going to suffer eternal punishment at the return of the Lord. Hell is something we don't like to talk about, understandably so. But here's the thing. God's judgment is something that is properly understood and can be a comfort to those who are suffering. God's judgment is not just to punish the wicked. That's actually a secondary thing. In this passage, God's primary purpose of judgment is to bring justice, to upright all those things that are wrong, to take those things that are marred in creation because creation's groaning, and to newly create them. And it's to vindicate the righteous. So those are the primary purposes of judgment. The judgment of the wicked is only secondary. And in the process, as a result of that judgment, those who reject the gospel will be eternally separated from God. The God who loves them, the God who died for them, the God who did everything to bring them into his image. And so for what it's worth, I find comfort that this isn't written as a motivation for evangelism. Right? This isn't written to say, hey, you know, you should... And that, this is a really fine nuance. It's not that I'm saying you go around to tell uh, people to believe in Jesus or else they're going to go to hell. I'm also not saying that there might not be a time where that kind of sentiment might actually be appropriate given the right relationship context and everything. You know your friends. Uh, but what I am saying is that the apocalypse, Jesus' return, is first about Jesus being revealed in his church. It's about Jesus being revealed in his church. It's only secondarily about judgment, overturning all those things that are unright, that, that are not right, that are unjust. And what did Jesus say? I mean, think of the words of Jesus. He said, he didn't come like a thief to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He came that they might have life and have it to the full. When we talk about evangelism, what we're inviting people into is eternal life. Not just communion with God, but a quality of life that is qualitatively different to, to, to be the human that God has created them to be. To have the fullest life that he intends for them. That's the motivation for evangelism. It's positive. It's not punitive. So it says in 2 Thessalonians 1.10 that Jesus is coming on that final day. And when he does, he will be glorified in his saints. The things that are hidden are going to be revealed. Creation is going to be made new. And those who have put their trust in him, that have worked out the faith, growing in love for one another, are going to experience the goodness of what they've only had as a dim reflection as they look in that mirror. And I was blessed this week, uh, so you know, my apologies to Nadia, who's heard some of this already. I was blessed to give a chapel talk this week. It was really fun. And one of the things I'm going to encourage you to do this week is something that I encourage them to do as well, which, uh, you know, Halloween is tomorrow, right? And all of us, well, not all of us, I can't speak for all of us, many of us have plans, uh, you know, to dress up or to have neighbors over. And um, while there's a lot of really weird stuff that happens on Halloween, 
Let's not forget that it was a holy day for the church before it was a weird day. Um, <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I was thinking of the slogan like, let's make Halloween weird again. But, you know, it's all right. Um, so All Saints Day is November 1st. That's Tuesday. It's a day where we celebrate the glory of Jesus found in the communion of saints in heaven and on earth. Or what you can call in systematic theology, the church triumphant. And the church militant, right? Or sorry, the church militant and the church triumphant. There you go. Church militant, thus here and now, the church triumphant, those who have passed on into glory. The feast actually starts the night before on the October 31st. Um, call that All Hallows Eve, the Eve of All Saints. And so this Halloween, what I want you to do, this isn't a homework assignment. This is a joyful thing to enter into. It is to find a saint to do a little more reading about. You can go through your Book of Common Prayer. There's a list, they call it a sanctoral calendar, list of saints in the back. You can find someone that you've never heard of to read about. You can go online, Google them. It takes five seconds. Do a little reading about who they were and write down some of the aspects of Jesus that you see in their life that you really want to see more of in yourself. And, and one of the other implications of this that I think a lot about is that you know, you and I, we are planting a church, planting a church. We're not just planting a Sunday service. Right? We're not just here to make a good experience on Sunday mornings. And so, you know, having said that, Sunday morning is a primary way that we're formed together in worship. And we were formed together in worship Friday night as we worship together around the, the fire pit. That was fun, too. This is a place to use our gifts together. It's a place to shake hands, to connect with one another, to pray for one another, to hear God's word, to receive his grace in the sacraments. It's a place to leave changed. Those are all good things. And it's only about 75 minutes out of the week. Maybe it's 120 minutes if the students stay for student ministry hour and the parents stay and everybody stays to have coffee and hang out. There's a lot more to our week than 120 hours. So what do we do with it? Planting a church. Planting a church means that uh, means planting a community that is growing in faith and in love. Such that the imprint of God, the imprint of the face of God, is being continually hammered out in a people, corporately and individually. And when we started this church, um, I knew that you know, the four households that were on Zoom... Uh, that's kind of how we started. If you don't know that, we, I, I got to know those four households via Zoom um, or later on in person. But what was interesting is at the beginning, none of them knew each other. They only knew me. And that is not a church. <laughs> that is not a church. But in God's grace, over time, we started to layer those relationships, which was really key. We had frequency of meeting together. We worshiped together. We grew together. Those things just take time. Like that doesn't happen overnight. And that love continues to grow for one another. And I love watching it. I think that was one of the reasons I loved Friday so much. It felt like the culmination of a couple years now of relationship building. And, and one person sometime back was having a really rough week. And when I checked in on them to see if they needed something, they said, oh, you know what? This other family already called me up and they're going to be helping us out tonight. And I love that. I love that this church is growing in love. Um, 
it, it means that when we're growing in love, we are setting aside our routines. We're setting aside our comforts. We're even going out of our way to let people know how loved they are by God and how loved they are by us. Um, because we are both sons and daughters of God called to be in this church together that we are planting together. Formation groups are designed to do that. And those, you know, we're going to continue as we move into the new space. We're going to continue to add more and more times for those. So they're not just on Sunday afternoons. I know some of you are like, hallelujah. Uh, (laughs) And um, we're going to build relationships in those. But to build relationships, we need to have either a few meetings for a long period of time, think like a retreat, or we need to have a lot of meetings for a short period of time, frequency. So depth or frequency, those are the two ways to build relationships in the context of the church. One takes more time than the other. Both are substantial. So when you spend an hour or two with somebody over an eight-week period every week, you are going to care for that person more than you did before that group ever started. There's no substitute for doing that. That's part of building a church. There are times when no formation groups meet. I think of that like a fallow season. Like sometimes we just need to let things lie fallow to recharge, and that's a good thing. And, and in those fallow seasons, that allows people to think about joining a new formation group and you know, cross-layering those relationships. Um, and in those extended seasons where there's no formation group happening, put a pin in your calendar to make time with people, either extended or short and frequent. Invite somebody to lunch after the service. Maybe every couple weeks you do lunch after the service and you invite somebody you don't know that well. Maybe you invite somebody over for dinner. Uh, I, I love to have you all over at my house. And if I haven't yet, it's only a matter of time. Um, or I'll invite myself over to yours. One of those things that's going to happen. <laughs> and, um, you know, even if your house is a mess and you just haven't cleaned it, like this is hospitality. I want you to enter into my life, right? And, and vice versa. These are good, good ways of building a relationship. It's those, those kinds of sacred moments where we enter into people's lives and we're breaking bread together. It's in these Sunday morning experiences together on those Friday nights where we're roasting marshmallows together that we are getting to know one another, that we hear Jesus's words to us in community, that we're being hammered out together in reflecting God's image to the world. And I feel like those moments of growing in faith together and in love for one another are those sacred moments that I look to where I can say we are building a church that we're not just building a Sunday service, but we are planting a church. And, and God is hammering out in this church a mirror to display his glory, to look in on it so that his face shows uh, to one another and to the world. And you and I are part of that. When things feel really challenging, I want to encourage us to embrace that as God's sanctifying grace of hammering and polishing. Your story this morning is part of the great story that God is telling in the communion of saints. Let us pray. O eternal Lord God, you hold all souls in life. Shed forth upon your whole church in paradise and on earth the bright beams of your light and heavenly comfort. And grant that we, following the good examples of those who have loved and served you here and are now at rest, 
may enter with them into the fullness of your unending joy. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.